My global IQ is 109. Beginning last year, I joined the McQuiston program as co-host. Airing on KERA and available on McQuistonTV.org, Dennis McQuiston and I talk about things that matter with people who care. I hope you'll enjoy this recent broadcast. Well, welcome to the program. I'm obviously Dennis McQuiston, and I'm not exactly sitting in a studio, and this is the first time in our 30 years being on the air that we've ever done anything like this. Uh, Given the situation, it may not be the last time, but we have a really interesting program to talk about uh, and and look at really the oil and gas situation and the economic situation in view of everything that's happened in the last few weeks. So joining me is my co-host, Jim Falk, and Jim as many of you know, I've seen him lately with us, and he is the CEO of the World Affairs Council, Dallas-Fort Worth as well. And Jim, you're going to introduce uh, one of our guests right now, so why don't you go ahead and do that, and let's talk about oil and gas and where we are. So to shed light on how COVID-19 is and will continue to impact our economy, we are joined by Ken Hirsch. He's the president and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center, and he's also the co-founder and former CEO of NGP Energy Capital Management, a private equity investment firm. He currently serves as senior advisor to the Carlisle Group's Natural Resources Division. Ken, it's great to see you and thanks for being our guest today. Happy to do it, thank you for having me. So I was looking this morning, here we are in mid-April at the price of West, West Texas Intermediate and it went under $20. And this is just a, you know, a few days after President Trump was working with Saudi Arabia and Russia, hopefully to reach some type of an agreement to, to stabilize prices. Doesn't look like that's quite happened. What's your, what's your insight? Well, my insight is I'm, I'm 35 years old again, um, although I got a lot less hair. Um, we are, it is, it is absolutely stunning uh, what has happened uh, in the oil markets. Um, it had started uh, as a price war before the before the virus uh, pandemic, um, and uh, and then the the demand destruction as a result of the pandemic has just been stunning. Um, let me give you a let me just give you the just some numbers to put it some simple numbers to put it in perspective. Um, the world uh, supplies and demands plus or minus 100 million barrels of oil per day, so it's easy to remember. Uh, we right now globally are running a 30 million barrel a day drop in demand. Now, OPEC produces about 30 million barrels a day. So in order to balance the market, um, normally what happens is price is the, is the governor, and then people respond to the price signals and regulate investment, which causes production to go up or down. A 10 million barrel a day drop in our agreement to pull 10 million barrels a day off the market would not balance the market. Um, so we, right now we're in this maximum uh, uncertainty phase where uh, the shutdown uh, has created the big drop. And, and the market understands that that's temporary. So the big question is when the shutdown is over, where is the new normal in oil demand? The, uh, we have some early signals of that because you can look in areas like uh, South Korea and like China, where they've where they've reopened, and in Hong Kong, where they've started to reopen after the pandemic has kind of swept through. 
Um, early estimates may be that it's a 10% drop from the pre-virus normal. So that means we're in kind of a 90 million barrel a day new normal of demand. Um, and so in that market, a 10 million barrel a day uh, withdrawal from the market would be about right to balance the market. So I think that, that we need to not look at what today's price is, although it is absolutely horrific from a producer standpoint. Um, you're, you basically can't function. So the oil and gas business is no different than the, than the neighborhood restaurant. And you might have a little takeout going and a little curbside delivery, but you're not covering your costs. You're not covering your rent. So you're really slowly going out of business. You're just eating into your cash reserves. So that's exactly what's happened in the, in, in the oil and gas industry today. And it's, and it's probably true globally. Um, there is, there's nobody who can make money um, and, re and have enough free cash flow to reinvest at today's prices. So when you focus on what's happening in Texas, I mean, you, of course, lots of people are losing their jobs in the oil service sector. I've read recently how Halliburton is furloughing, laying off truly thousands of people. But what about the actual production in the situation where you're shutting in wells uh, throughout the Permian? Sure. So the, um, you know, the first thing you do if you're running an oil and gas field is you just, if it breaks, you don't go fix it. Okay. But if it's pumping, you know, and doesn't, doesn't have a very high marginal cost on a day-to-day -day basis, you, you basically do what you can to keep it going. Um, and so the, there are two aspects of the, of, I'll, I'll call them shut-ins. There's the physical going around and actually turning off your wells. Um, that is a really, uh, you would only do that in really high cost production where you do have daily operating costs um, in excess of today's prices. The second is just the lack of investment causes the um, natural declines to take over. And so the natural declines that we're going to be talking about uh, in, the, in the U.S. and in Texas is going to be north of 20%. So it would not surprise me for the United States to lose two to three million barrels a day of production really starting this summer and moving into, um, into the first quarter of next year. But it does take a little while for that to... Um, uh, to that for that to catch up. That's kind of a four to six month uh, phenomenon. So we'll see the US really start to contract in the middle of the summer. What type of washout do you think we might see with some of the oil and gas independent companies that don't have the financial strength uh, to weather the storm? It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. I so mean, well, I, then I, will we see some of the larger companies, the majors, will they be purchasing the assets or the companies? Well, um, you know, the wells don't know who owns them. They don't know if the equity owns them or the bank owns them. The wells just pump, okay? So the, right now, what uh, the, the, the transition is between the companies that have good balance sheets and the companies that don't, um, and the companies that don't have good balance sheets, ultimately their lenders are going to be now their owners. Um, so then it's going to be up to the lenders, who now are their owners, to decide what are we going to do with it? Are we just going to sell it and then put it on the market and see who, who the buyers are? Um, it, you know, it's not like it, it's, it, it's, there, there is a process that we go through in this country, thankfully, um, where we sort this out. And in many cases, uh, you know, what, what, this is not dissimilar to what happened in the real estate business um, in the financial crisis where, you know, it was amend and pretend and extend, right? And so the banks aren't equipped to operate oil and gas wells. Some of the banks are taking more aggressive stance this, that I've read. Um, but, you know, that, that comes to, that'll, that will remain to be seen. 
Well, one yeah. of the things that really financed and supported all this uh, exploration, especially with fracking, was investors. Um, and, and that money has really dried up, hasn't it? It was already drying up b before the virus. That's right. And that's, I mean, we have a market economy and that's what happens in a market economy is that in investment turns off and when investment turns off, the natural declines take over and then supply drops. Um, mm -hmm. And then now here's the, here's the difference. In a normal market, low prices cure low prices and high prices cure high prices, right? Low prices sure. cause the supply drop but they also caused a demand increase. So in this case, we've seen, you know, gasoline here in town is $1.50 a gallon. I mean, I feel like I'm 25 years old again. I mean, that to me is, a, is, is also a dramatic signal. Normally that would cause an increase in demand. Okay, and so that is the, that will be the real, um, that'll be the real uh, telltale sign is when demand uh, follows that price signal. And I think that that takes a, a, a good year to two years to sink in. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. How important is jet fuel in all of this? Because when you have the aviation industry essentially shut down, and I think, you know, see what you think about this, but I think it's going to take several months for Americans to really, around the world, for people to feel comfortable flying again. Yeah, and I think that uh, it will. Um, Jet fuel is about 10% uh, of, um, of the U.S. demand. So I think that's something that uh, we'll, you know, we'll pick up uh, and, be more, and be more slow. We just have to wait and see. Yeah, Ken, let me jump in there because um, there are, let's just say, events happening here in Texas that might or might not happen and might affect things. And uh, yesterday's uh, Dallas Morning News, Scott Sheffield came out pioneer and they're talking about trying to get the Texas Railroad Commission to go back to what they used to do, which is controlling supply in order to increase price and all that. Uh, how do you feel about the, that sort of a political move? Well, normally I'd be opposed to it. I, I think that that is a, um, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, the, U the Texas produces four to five million barrels a day, about four million barrels a day. If we prorate back 20 or 30% of our production, that's a million barrels a day. Remember my numbers, we're a 30 million barrel a day off the supply and demand, um, you mismatch. And so it, it might help. I just, you know, I hate to have the politicians uh, do anything temporary, ask them to do something that's temporary um, because then all bets are off when you flip and say, okay, now it's time to turn it back on. Who do you, you know, how do you do that? And who's in the railroad commission at that moment? And, you know, it's it just, you know, it's, it's interesting to ask for it. Um, it's important to ask for it uh, because we're in pretty desperate times. Um, but the execution of it is just, is um, adds another air of uncertainty. Um, the, the, the labor in the oil and gas industry does not belong to the oil and gas companies. It belongs to the oil and gas service companies, the Halliburtons and the Schlumbergers of the world. Those are where the, uh, where the labor lives. And that, 
they are the swing factor. Um, you know, when, when times are good, the service companies can uh, have really big fat margins. And as soon as times turn down, the producers basically collapse the, the service company's margins and they get hit the, they get hit the fir first. Um, the, uh, the, the new drilling has stopped and, and so the, the, rig, the rig count is a good indicator of employment. Um, and so we're just, you know, it, it's a sector that's down. I, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it because it's bad, but um, you know, the oil and gas sector has been um, one of the reasons that the economy uh, drove, had any growth um, coming out of the financial crisis. And, you know, in a dynamic economy like we have, um, we, we ebb and flow with between sectors and, and they, some other sector picks up the slack when, um, you know, and when, when uh, one sector's down. So the, so the oil and gas industry now, could you, could, you know, the big things to watch is, are there some, is there, is there something that is happening because of this crisis that is teaching us that we can use less people? In the oil and gas industry, that something on the backside of this will come out of this with a structurally different industry where there'll be dramatically fewer people. And now, you know, that would be something to be to grab onto and say that this is something to, to think about. I don't see that. We had already, in fact, when prices were higher, that's when people want to try to take costs out of the system. And and so we've already added the telemetry and trying to you know, have smart rigs where you have fewer people. So, so the number of people that were working in the industry a year ago is a pretty good number, if we can get back to that level of, of activity. Well, I'm showing my age because I was an energy banker in Houston in the early 80s and our slogan was staying alive till 85. And <laughs> I feel like we're seeing a little bit of, of that again, but with one sharp difference, and that is that there is now a a, such an emphasis on renewables and alternatives to hydrocarbons. Is this situation in any way, could it accelerate it? No, I think it takes the, I think it goes the opposite way. Does it? Yeah, I think it pushes, people are gonna say, look, what do we, high cost renewables um, is something we don't have the luxury, uh, the luxury to invest in right now. And if we're coming into a recession, uh, coming, coming out of a depression into a recession, um, it's gonna push it back. Uh, I That's think, assuming the price is going to stay low. Put, bring out your crystal ball for a moment. Yeah. What do you think the price might be a year from now? I think the price a year from now, I think $50 is, a, is an oil price that, that is, ve is a very stable oil price. Below $50, it's basically a subsidy from the, from the producers of the world to the consumers. Okay, because they're, they're not making enough money to reinvest in order to sustain their, their business. Um, and the uh, and so that's kind of the stable price. Now that means that you end up with a range. Um, you know the range is kind of forty to eighty. Um, you know because the market always overcorrects in each side. Um, and when the market gets too high, uh, you know which is what we saw. The market was moving into the seventies, and all of a sudden U.S. production was ramping up. And so OPEC looked at, around and said we're losing market share because every time we cut a little bit, the U.S industry increases and um you know and so that they said well why are we losing market share so they dialed up production and that was the that and you know they tried to get restraint but russia didn't didn't agree and so next thing you know they ended up with uh with a price war before the virus will the supply chain where we're producing so many pharmaceuticals 
and so many other products in China now start to come back to America? And if so, how long would that take? Yeah, and let's put that in context that over 80, 85 percent of our antibiotics are being produced in China. Right. Well, I think let me let me back up a little bit because I think what's interesting and this this is just a perspective from my position on the in the Bush world now. Um, 9-11 was a was an attack, uh, was a terror attack against the United States, but it was also endemic about the growth of terrorism around the world. And it was kind of a borderless enemy. And so it was an international outrage. Um, it wasn't just an American problem. Um, and but it was it was endemic about the the free flow of people and movements around the world that these are the that's kind of the new nameless faceless enemies that appeared in 9-11. Here we have a nameless faceless enemy in this virus. And but yet what's happened is it's been it's been treated not as a global uh, enemy, um, but as a state enemy. And so we've reasserted borders around the world. People are shutting travel between borders. So it's kind of a reassertion. Instead of saying that we all need to fight this thing together, um, we're saying maybe the smart way to fight this is actually to segment. You know, we're even doing that locally. We're segmenting individually, social distancing. I mean, these are, you know, we're, we're erecting barriers as a, it, which is quite different than the, the lessons of 9-11. Now, I'm not saying that it would have been better to, uh, you know, to have a free flow and, and more air travel. I'm not saying that at all, because the scientific community is moving, is moving data around borderlessly all over the world. So that's good. And we're sharing experiences because different countries, even different states are doing the shutdowns a little bit differently and the quarantines, et cetera. So I think that, 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 that's, that what's endemic now is that the, it's sort of a reassertion of borders. And in a reassertion of border world, things like supply chains really have a problem. And those are, um, that, that will, that, that's gonna be a longer term effect of this. Uh, pharmaceuticals, I'm not in the pharmaceutical industry, so I know what we're all reading, um, and it does look like that there are trends afoot to say, um, we need to rethink. I think we need to rethink, people are gonna rethink their supply chains, people are gonna rethink their relationships around the world. You know, a long time ago when the Berlin Wall came down and we were gonna open up Eastern Europe, there was this flood of, of excitement about a new market that was opening, a couple hundred million people, and it's a new democracy, and here we go into Russia, and people went headlong into Russia, and a decade later, they said that was the worst decision ever made, and they pulled back. And I think people are gonna rethink about what, what doing business in China really means, and has, now that they've been at it for a decade, yeah, they got cheap supply, but they got their intellectual property stolen, did they really have rule of law? Are their executives there safe? I mean, did, did we actually make any money? Have we been able to repatriate it? I think it's a real open question about what doing business, especially in China, uh, is gonna look like. And I think it's, I personally think that it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, and it's gonna follow a similar path uh, to Russia. And so um, all of this begs the question then, Ken, of, now the president and some of his advisors are pushing to reopen uh, America, basically, and, and places around the world are trying to do the same thing. How do you see this playing out uh, in terms of the time frame, and how is it going to work, and, and uh, what are the risks from your perspective? Well, I, I think the first thing is we need, to, we need to let the medical and the public health community dictate that. Uh, that's the first 
first key element um, is that the politicians need to know what they don't know, and uh, me included, and I'm not a politician. I think that we can speculate uh, and we can try to anticipate, but uh, at the end of the day, I think that the public health authorities have to be the ones who are giving guidance. And it's imperative upon every business leader and every, every faith leader, you name it, every political leader to, to take their cues from uh, the public health uh, authorities. Um, that said, I think that you can anticipate what may happen. We have a very hard close and we'll have a soft opening. And so I think that from a business perspective, what I'm doing is just doing some scenario planning and saying, is this gonna be a, a, an eight week, an eight month or a two year kind of process? Um, I, you know, the key question is, is when, from, and so from a full opening standpoint, the key question is when do we restore confidence? And a vaccine, you know, we have a flu, a flu shot every year and 50 to 60 or 70,000 people die every year of the flu, even with the flu shots, right? But yet we still fill crowded football stadiums and baseball stadiums because we have the confidence that the risks are low and that if I do get something, healthcare is good and access. So I think that, that we need to get this back into, into, the, into kind of the box of our understanding. And, um, and that'll take, I think that'll take a while, but I mean, the public authorities will figure that, will we'll, we'll really figure that out and guide us. And let me ask you about how this has affected your work at the Bush Institute, because you're a nonpartisan think tank and you have had some projects with Africa, especially on, on, with PEPFAR and, and other activities like that. So how are you reorienting your work? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think we've, we've obviously moved into the digital world. Um, and uh, and in, the, in areas of focus that we've, been, um, that we've been most pronounced in, we're trying to reassert uh, kind of the value of those, those, our guiding principles around less government dependency and being a strong and compassionate country at home and abroad and economic and political freedom. Um, you know, freedom is a, it could be a big casualty of this crisis and different people want to clamp down in different ways. Um, and that's happening all, that, that could happen around the world. Um, so we need to be a voice as to why that, uh, you know, is, is not the proper course of action. From a global health standpoint, um, there needs to be global leadership around, around that. Um, it, the United States is, is the big player. Um, what does that mean going forward? We're spending a lot of time thinking about what that means and what is the new order? You know, right, we, we have these, these institutions that were set up. The WHO is an interesting institution, but then it apparently gets corrupted by, in, by political influence with China, and yet we're paying the bill, and so it's a reaction. Now President Trump has had this massive reaction to it. Well, we don't want to throw the babies out with the bathwater either, and if the WHO is doing some good work, you know, how do you discipline the WHO without, without cutting it off in order to maintain, you know, the... the really the distribution channel for that good work. So I think we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about that. We're spending a lot of time thinking about education. Um, one of the things that being in an online world uh, does is it pronounces the, it, it increases the inequality around the have, between the haves and the have nots with respect to, to the tools of education and the, and the, um, and the way that, ed that education is delivered and consumed. Um, the, uh, the early data on, on what the, second half of the school year looks like this year and the retention rates of what people of the students will, will keep in the K to 12 world K, you know what they will retain during their summer and if they have to go online in the fall 
I mean, you're talking about a real lasting impact if people really are moving up a grade, you know, by the age clock, but not, but not by the education clock. Listen, we appreciate your time and joining us. Jim, it's always great to visit with you uh, this way, even though we're not sitting next together. Thank we you, Ken. All of you join us. Uh, and as you know, we're always talking about things that matter with people who care. And today, things really matter. So thanks for joining.